Well, welcome again to the St. Mark's podcast, and we're discussing um, familial adenomatous polyposis and syndrome similar to that with uh, Professor Sue Clark, uh, who, is, who has, uh, is director of the St. Mark's Hospital Polyposis Registry. Now, I suppose St. Mark's, above all, one of the things it's remembered for is its extraordinary pioneering work in FAP, as it's called. And um, this seemed to predate work from other fi- other centres by a long way when it started all those years ago um, in the 30s uh, uh, and has, has really become one of our hallmarks of, uh, the, the, uh, of treatment. And, see, and our ideas seem to have gone around the world uh, in, in some measure. So, Sue, um, do you want to just introduce us to the whole concept of FAP and, and how it um, seems to fit uh, very importantly into the, into the colorectal cancer story? Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, I've, I'm incredibly privileged to work at the Polyposis Registry, uh, which was actually started in 1924 by Cuthbert Jukes, who was pathologist at St Mark's Hospital, uh, and uh, Lockhart Mummery, who was a surgeon. And they noticed that there were young patients who developed colorectal cancer, uh, who had large numbers of polyps, and had a family history of the same problem. And uh, the 1920s and 1930s was really a sort of um, burgeoning time for the study of inheritance. And they uh, thought that they should try to uh, work out what was going on. And they took very detailed pedigrees and worked out that this was a dominantly inherited condition, familial adenomatous polyposis. They took a great deal of trouble to keep very detailed records, but in those days there wasn't very much that they could do. Um, After the Second World War, uh, surgery became a lot safer. There were antibiotics and safer anaesthetics. And they then uh, pioneered the idea of prophylactic surgery and thought that if they could remove the polyp-bearing bowel, they could prevent people getting colorectal cancer, and they were absolutely dead right. Um, They did the first prophylactic operation in 1948 um, on a a patient who had a colectomy with ileorectal anastomosis. I think she was about 21 years old, and she lived into her late 80s. I actually met her. Um, She lived the rest of her life with a healthy rectum, um, and she died of cardiovascular disease at a very ripe old age. And that operation was pioneered by O.V. Lloyd Davis? Yes, that was that was Mr. Lloyd Davis who did that operation. And at that time he was um, criticised to some extent about leaving the rectum, was he? Did, was there a um, substantial feeling um, from other surgeons that he should have done the whole, taken the whole lot? Because we know that there is a risk of getting... Uh, erectile cancer at a later date and it's quite substantial isn't it? There is a risk and and, and he took the approach that uh, they would monitor the rectum using rigid sigmoidoscopy um, and fulgurate polyps as they arose which which is what then happened it was pretty labour intensive um, and some patients did go on and develop rectal cancer. Um, the operation was adopted uh, elsewhere and, and more and more centres started to do prophylactic surgery um, and at the Mayo Clinic, they actually uh, did, did the same thing, but they left a bit of sigmoid colon. They got much better functional results, but of course, in the days of rigid sigmoidoscopy, they couldn't adequately survey. Uh, and in the early 70s, they, they looked at their follow-up data, and I think they were really quite disturbed at the Mayo Clinic by the rate of rectal cancer. 
and they actually stopped doing colectomy with ileorectal and went and, and, and did pan-proctocolectomy with permanent ileostomy as their prophylactic operation. But that's a pretty big thing for a young person who's ostensibly healthy to undergo. So at St Mark's and at the Cleveland Clinic, we ploughed on with uh, doing ileorectals. Um, there is indeed a, a risk of cancer and um, people need to be very carefully uh, followed up. And is that still our standard operation for the youngsters? It is our standard operation. Um, when the ileoanal pouch was developed, the restorative proctocolectomy in the late 70s, um, Mayo Clinic uh, adopted it uh, with great gusto and actually to this day, I think, believe that it's the only operation that people should have for uh, FAP. And and there are two sort of factions in the, in the colorectal community. There are people who hail from the Mayo Clinic or who are trained there who believe that all patients should have prophylactic pouch surgery. And there are um, the some Northern European and uh, Cleveland Clinic uh, grouping who feel that we should be selective. And what's the average age we're um, offering this operation to these youngsters at now? So we, uh, we undertake the surgery, uh, generally speaking, in late teenage years. And, and when I meet a young a young person who has FAP, um, and most of most of them are uh, children of our existing patients and are, are found by planned predictive testing, uh, which we usually do when they're between the ages of 12 and 14, uh, because we want them to be old enough to understand what's going on and to take uh, to be able to take some part in the discussions. Um, so there's no need to, te to, to test them younger unless they have symptoms, um, the symptoms of, of bleeding or anemia. Um, we would test them younger, but usually we wait till they're 12 or 14. And how often have we seen earlier tumours than, say, 17, 18, 19, which is the time when we're going to offer them So it's vanishingly surgery. rare. They right. can occur. The youngest patient I've seen is a four-year-old with high-grade dysplasia, but that was a de, a de novo mutation. So we know that about 20% of patients with FAP um, have it uh, as the first person in their family. They have not inherited it. The mutation has occurred somewhere in the process of, of gametogenesis in their patient, in their parents, or in embryogenesis in them. Uh, so you, you do sometimes bump into them, but they usually present with symptoms and then somebody makes a clinical diagnosis. So they might come earlier, I suppose. Um, but, but in a family you know has got it, um, doing it, you know, 15 onwards uh, is safe. Is yeah, so safe we, we, to we tend to test the kids about 12 to 14 and then do a colonoscopy to get a feel for their polyp burden. And it's quite important that their colonoscopy is done carefully. Um, the reason is that we use both uh, the knowledge of what their genetic mutation is and, in their, and their polyp burden in their colon and rectum to guide the timing and type of surgery. So whenever I meet somebody with polyposis I, or with FAP, I, the most important things we need to talk about are the timing and type of surgery that they're going to have to stop them getting bowel cancer. I mean, this is an autosomal dominant uh, inherited condition uh, and the mutations in the uh, APC gene. Yes. Uh, on chromosome 5Q. It is, yes. And is that, is are there lots of subgroups as well like we... So it's Talked a very in the first podcast. Yeah, so it's a very interesting gene. It's a huge gene that codes for a huge and complex protein. And we know that there is what we call genotype phenotype correlation. So where in the gene the mutation is can have an influence on what the disease is like.
So people who have mutations at the far ends tend to have a fairly mild colorectal phenotype, so late onset scantia polyps, later onset cancer. People uh, with mutations in what we call the far three prime end of the gene also tend to have a high risk of desmoid. And people with mutations sort of in the middle tend to have middling standard disease. There's also an area that's called the mutation cluster region um, with uh, where people have uh, particularly severe disease. So they will get polyps younger, cancers younger, and these are the people who do sometimes pitch up in childhood with symptomatic polyps and high-grade dysplasia. So it, it can be quite important to know what somebody's mutation actually is, which codon their, muta their mutation is in. And that's one of the first questions I always ask when I see a patient with FAP. And will they always be the same as their parent? Yes. So that's easier in a sense. It's not going to have this sporadic change and, and difficulties in characterising each individual. You can that, almost predict right. it within families. It, 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 that mutation runs in the family, exactly. And once you've, once you've identified it, it's then very straightforward to, to know whether other people in the family have it or not. Right. Well, we're going to come along to Desmoid in just a moment because I know a lot of our listeners will be very interested in that extraordinary condition. Mm -hmm. But just to characterise the syndrome a little bit more, there are lots of other extra intestinal manifestations which always have confused me. Yes. Um, would you like to just tell us a little bit about those before we move on to Desmoid? Yeah. So um, the uh, the... The, the APC protein, as part of what it does, is organises three-dimensional structures. And if you think about the uh, intestinal crypt, it is a three-dimensional structure. You have stem cells at the bottom, and in an amazing and organised fashion, they reproduce at the right rate, and cells mature and differentiate as they move up the crypt in, in beautiful synchrony with cells being shed at the luminal surface. And... If that process goes wrong and cells start to heap up, you then get polyps. Now, there are other three-dimensional structures in our bodies. And in fact, the, that protein is quite important in embryogenesis, in knowing what's up and down and left and right. Um, there are other structures like tooth buds are very similar in structure to crypts, and our patients often have dental anomalies. The inner ear is another very delicate three-dimensional structure, and we know that patients with FAP have subtle hearing deficits. The skin appendages are very similar, and uh, patients often get epidermoid cysts. And we think those occur because heaping up of cells and disorganisation of this migration uh, blocks the skin appendages. They get um, a, a blocked gland, and they get a, a, an epidermoid cyst. So uh, those are very three-dimensional things. Osteomas are also very common. Uh, they occur often on the mandible and on the cranium, usually harmless unless they get in the way of your jaw opening and closing. Um, chirpies, which are uh, pigmented uh, areas in the retina, uh, they're harmless, but they, we bump into them because it, before the genetic testing was available, people thought they might be able to screen children by looking for, for chirpies. And every now and again, a child will go to a, or an adult will go to, a, 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 go to the optician and somebody will look at their retina and find these uh, marks on the retina and uh, think maybe this person has FAP and refer them in. And, and they're usually right, are they, when they send them it, up? It depends. And one of the things that uh, we, we've hoped to do is, is try to map them because they're actually quite common. But if they are um, multiple and bilateral, then they 
are uh, can be associated with FAP. So we would uh, do some do colonoscopies. So all these extra intestinal manifestations are, are rather bizarre in a way, but the, the, none of them seem to kill you, except of course when you're getting uh, the increased rate of cancers in other organs. And duodenum, of course, is the one yeah. that comes to mind. We're not going to have much time to talk about that, but just character, characterise that for us. So um, we've got good at preventing our patients dying of, of colorectal cancer by doing a colectomy or doing a, a restorative proctocolectomy to stop them getting cancer. Um, we now find that uh, they have other disease-related causes of death, and most of them will get duodenal adenomas. At least 95% of them will have them, um, and about 5 to 10% will get duodenal cancers. Um, and this is a much more difficult problem because they tend to manifest a bit later. We do do surveillance, uh, but the difficulty is knowing what to do. If, if you develop a duodenal cancer the prognosis is pretty poor sometimes we can pick them up early uh, and our patients do have surgery but ideally we'd like to prevent them getting cancer but a prophylactic duodenectomy is a pretty morbid operation particularly in somebody who's already had their colon removed so it's a much more difficult problem uh, to know whether to offer somebody that surgery and when to do it and just while i think about it for a while they've been um, moves to use um, medicines to stop the, uh, the polyps growing in the colon, uh, but what uh, what about the duodenum? And yeah. So there's been, the a, been, there? a, been a bit of work on what's called chemo prevention, which I, I think is a bit of a misnomer. It's kind of chemo, it's it, drug treatment of polyps, um, and in fact we've been involved in some of the randomised trials, uh, and there are a load of problems with them. First of all, um, the only uh, drug that's ever shown to have any effect in the upper GI tract has been celecoxib, uh, but that has a, a major uh, adverse effects in terms of ischemic heart disease. And the, the problem with the patients with duodenal adenomas is that they're often in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They're mostly hypertensive, diabetic, and it would those drugs are contraindicated in them. Um, the other massive concern that I uh, have now got about these uh, so-called chemoprevention agents is that some of them, particularly in the rectum, do actually reduce the numbers of polyps people have, sometimes quite dramatically, but they don't necessarily protect against cancer. And we've seen a number of patients where polyps have melted away, but then they've got cancer. And actually, really, polyps themselves don't matter. They're a red flag, and they're a very useful red flag that something bad is happening. And if we abolish the red flag, we may actually allow people to develop cancer rather than intervening beforehand with surgery. And that worries me. That's, that's really uh, disappointing, isn't it? Uh, what about the duodenum? We can look at it regularly. We can take or do polypectomies or some EMR resections of, of things we, which look suspicious. Does any of that stop a cancer coming? We don't know. I thought um, you were going to say we've, that. We've got some <laughs> quite good data to show that it's safe. So we've, we've now got um, well over 400 uh, endoscopic polypectomies in the duodenum and we've had no major complications, no perforations, uh, nobody having to go to theatre afterwards. So it's safe. But does it help? 
The honest answer is we don't know. We need a randomised trial to answer that question. Um, uh, there was an old study from France where they actually, before the days of endoscopic therapy, they actually did open, they did duodenotomy and polypectomies, completely cleared the duodenum of polyps, sewed it back up again, and all the polyps came back. So I really don't know whether this is much more like a field change sort of situation where we feel that we're doing great things by taking off polyps, but we're actually doing no good. We may be postponing surgery in some patients. I honestly don't know, but I think it's safe. Um, and until we're brave enough to do a trial, I don't think I'm going to be able to answer that question, Peter. Thank you very much indeed. Now, before we go on to desmoids, um, how do you when do you select someone for a restorative proctocolectomy and and pouch in the in this group and at what point in their lives are you going to offer that so at the timing of surgery the really important thing is that it's before they get cancer that's the whole point and the older they get the more polyps they get the bigger the polyps are the less likely you are to get in there before cancer develops um, we, my favourite time for doing the operation is when they're 16 in the summer holidays after GCSEs. Um, they are physically adult, adult surgeons can operate on them. It's relatively straightforward to do a laparoscopic colectomy. They usually have parents to bring them along, look after them afterwards in a long summer holiday. Doesn't, it doesn't uh, disrupt their education or life very much. And most of these young people will actually say worrying about the surgery is worse than the actuality. And just to get on and do it, get it over and done with, um, is is probably to their benefit. And they cope with the frequency of bowel action afterwards. Yeah, I mean the average is, well. is about three times a day, yeah. but at, they settle down pretty quickly. Much better it seems than people having it at an older age. Um, sometimes they don't get to us till later, or there are other reasons why they want to wait. For some of the people with milder polyposis. Um, it might be perfectly reasonable to wait and some of the other syndromes. So MAP, which is a recessively inherited adenomatous polyposis, which is a bit milder than FAP. How often do you see that? Uh, we, we see that a bit less than FAP, but we're probably going to see it more and more in the future. Um, so that in those people, you can wait. If somebody has a, a, a a high risk of getting desmoid you would definitely want to wait they tend to have fewer polyps and we know that delaying surgery reduces the risk of desmoid and then when do we go on to restorative proctocolectomy is it is it when the polyps in the rectum you know in the in the mid-20s start looking so worrying? Uh, uh, we we've got some some criteria uh, that that are pretty well evidence-based now um that if you if you try and and split people into the mild and severe and basically the idea is that if somebody has relatively mild polyposis, you do a colectomy, they have the safest operation as an adolescent. You don't go into their pelvis, you don't risk their pelvic nerves, you don't risk their fertility, you you do you don't need to have a temporary stoma, you don't risk pouch failure. You know, selling that to a healthy adolescent is far preferable to a pelvic operation. Now, they then have lifelong follow-up, and some of them, as they get into their 50s and 60s, may need completion uh, proctectomy, but you could probably, and most of them, do a pouch. The ones who have more severe disease actually have a, have a rectum that's either already endoscopically unmanageable or within a very short time frame, less than 10 years, will be, and will need to have their rectum removed. And in those, it seems far more sensible just to get on and do it initially. So how do we differentiate those groups? Well, 
Ideally, we do it on the genotype. So we are basically advising that all patients with mutation cluster region mutation, so that's between codon 1250 and about 1400, ought to have a pouch as their first operation. Um, in the absence of that uh, genetic information, because we don't always know where the mutation is, then we want to look at the actual polyp burden. So if they have more than 500 colonic adenomas, or more than 20 rectal adenomas, or the rectum is not manageable endoscopically, then we would re recommend that that rectum is removed first off. And what proportion of our patients are ha having a restorative proctocolectomy in, in their 20s? Well, old? so the, 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 about a quarter of our patients are having a restorative proctocolectomy as their first operation. Well, Sue, that's most interesting. Um, but let's talk about desmoids, because out of all the things we talk about at St Mark's and teach, desmoids seem to come right at the top of the extraordinary things that people want to know about because they behave in such odd ways. Try and characterise them for me. So um, there is a very interesting paper uh, out recently that's called When is a Neoplasm Not a Neoplasm When It's a Desmoid? <laughs> uh, desmoids are very, very weird things. They are clonal, so they are clearly arising by some kind of neoplastic process, but they don't metastasize. They're not cancer. We call them tumors, but they're not cancer. They do uh, have a, a sort of locally invasive behavior, but they're also very similar to fibromatosis. So if you think about Dupuytren's uh, contracture in the, in the hand, that's a sort of infiltrative, cicatrizing, uh, 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 progressive process that um, actually when you biopsy it and look at the biology is neoplastic um, and desmoids probably are a form of fibromatosis and actually if you look at desmoid in the small bowel mesentery it can be a lump it can be a lump you know that, that actually looks like a, a, a fibrous tumor but it can also be a cicatrizing thing that puckers the mesentery and actually looks to all the world like Dupuytren's contracture of the small bowel mesentery. I mean, these these tumours, I've used the word again, um, can kill. Um, they affect how many FAP patients? One in five? So desmoids themselves are incredibly rare, um, uh, but 90% of them are sporadic and 10% occur in FAP. And there's always a question that I often get referrals of patients with desmoid, do they or do they not have, uh, have FAP? that only 10% will have. But if you have FAP, you are at a thousand times more risk of getting desmoid than the average person in the street. And probably about 20% of patients with FAP have desmoid. We, we now realize it's more common than we thought because we do more cross-sectional imaging and we discover more sort of quiescent desmoid now than people used to be aware of 20, 30 years ago. Um, one of the really, uh, odd things about desmoid is the way that it behaves and uh, probably the majority of desmoids appear and then just go through cycles of growth and resolution but fundamentally remain pretty stable. One in ten actually disappears completely spontaneously and another one in ten relentlessly grows and can end up causing the death of the patient and it's one of our commonest disease related causes of death. It's the third cause after duodenal and, yes. and colon yes um, and uh, how you manage them right when you first notice them i mean we had a patient who's had their surgery done very well 
comes back with a good-sized desmoid which appears to be growing. What are you going to do? So it depends really on where it is. Um, the commonest site in FAP is in the small bowel mesentery. They can actually occur absolutely anywhere. Um, but the commonest is the small bowel mesentery and the next commonest is the abdominal wall. And they tend to occur in response to trauma. And, of course, all of our patients are having surgery, uh, which involves removing their colon, which is probably why it's so common at those sites, because that's where it's being traumatised. In the abdominal wall, probably the best treatment, if a desmoid is troublesome, is simply to remove it and to do so before it gets so big that you end up with a big defect. There is a high, what's called recurrence rate. I'm not convinced it's really recurrence. I think for most of these, it's actually new desmoid at the, at the site of the old desmoid because of the trauma. Um, but the recurrence rate, if you want to call it that, is about 40%. But that means 60%, you're going to have a very satisfactory outcome after first surgery. I've operated on multiple recurrences and sometimes it just stops happening after you've removed it a couple of times. So in the abdominal wall or at an extra abdominal site that's fairly safe to operate on, I would say surgery. You can use a mesh in the abdominal wall, doesn't seem to change uh, the rates of, of recurrence. Um, some uh, people have tried doing radiofrequency ablation uh, at sites where it's safe to do it. Um, I've only seen anecdotal reports uh, of some degree of success, so I think the jury's still out on that one. But yeah, surgery outside the abdomen. Inside the abdomen, it's a very diff different kettle of fish because, of course, in the, in the small bowel mesentery, the desmoid can encase the mesenteric vessels. And actually, if you try and remove the mesentery, you end up removing sometimes a great deal of small bowel. So actually, we need to remember, first, do no harm. And most desmoids actually themselves will cause no harm. So you need to just watch very carefully. So a very conservative approach to intra-abdominal yes. uh, desmoids Increase, is, is the rule. Uh, yes, an increasingly conservative approach. So you first of all want to know whether this is just something you've picked up that's incidental or is just stopping growing and is not going to cause a problem, in which case just leave well alone. If it looks like it's one of the minority that are growing, then clearly we need to do something. And we have a, a, a sort of ladder of therapy, which is based on very poor evidence. What are you, what are you using? So we start with Solendac and anti-estrogens. We use raloxifene as our anti-estrogen because it has less in the way of adverse effects, mm. lower risk of endometrial carcinoma, lower risk of cataracts and other side effects. The um, reports are just case reports, small case series. No, no, there's never been a randomised trial of any kind. And given the biology and the way the desmoids behave, I think it's really hard to interpret. But I think there's a bit of anecdotal evidence that anti-estrogens can actually make desmoids necrose. So we try those as our first-line therapy. Um, if desmoids go on growing, cytotoxic chemotherapy has been shown to uh, reduce growth. Uh, but obviously that's a pretty major intervention. Um, the, the reported regimens are doxorubicin and carbazine or um, methotrexate with vinblastine or vincristine. And how often would they reduce the tumour's size? Or well, again, that's a really difficult question to answer because there have been no uh, there have been no randomised trials, and you do not know how much of the behaviour you're seeing is directly related to the desmoid. But there have been series of ten or so uh, cases where all of the desmoids have at least regressed to an extent which I think in the context uh, of growing desmoids probably shows that there's a, a pretty good effect. 
So not, not very easy to treat. Um, finally, sometimes these desmoids actually necrose in the middle and they become yeah. infected. They sometimes get a connection with the small bowel as well and they can become a nightmare to treat. Yeah, so that that's a very common presentation is with obstruction and sepsis. And what's actually happening is that the desmoid is necrosed and either by translocation or direct direct content at contact, um, bowel organisms are in in the desmoid and then it tends to get inflamed and swollen and you get more bowel obstruction uh, and uh, these patients often are very septic and often obstructed as well and obviously once it's got to that stage you can't give them cytotoxic chemotherapy we treat them with antibiotics with percutaneous drainage if that's possible with upstream diversion again if that's possible but sometimes it's incredibly difficult even to get a stoma to the surface when somebody has got a very puckered fibrosed mesentery and they've all had a colectomy pretty well yes exactly so yeah. you sometimes end up with a very proximal stoma sometimes i think they're better off with no stoma if they again have a very proximal stoma uh, and actually just having intravenous nutrition uh, and it's a very difficult situation to manage now sometimes it will resolve with conservative management drainage nutrition antibiotics diversion if you can sometimes it just doesn't and we've now um, developed a, a, a good relationship with our national small bowel transplant centers and we have now had a number of patients who've gone on to have total enterectomy some of them also with excision of the abdominal wall and small bowel transplant with in some cases, abdominal wall transplant as well. So this is desperate, desperate work for a desperate problem. Um, but the, the 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 way we should think about it is be do no harm, do as little as you can for as long as you can, watch the thing, treat it in in all these various ways, and and hope there's one that resolves. Yep. Well, on that um, note, I think our listeners are going to have to wait and for the next podcast if they want to learn more about. Uh, various things we do at St Mark's but thank you very much Professor Sue Clark for your giving out your wisdom on uh, familial adenomatous polyposis thank you very much <laughs>